I invite you to listen to the Word of God as we read it from Philippians 1, uh, verses 27 to 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened by anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, who, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that, I saw I ha- that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of God. You may be seated. You know, I am very blessed to be in a church where we have a pastor who is not selfish in sharing his pulpit. Um, you know, people, people say, may say, well, he's taking time off. He's not taking time off. He's allowing other brothers who can speak the truth the opportunity to do that. So, thank you, Justin, for, for giving me this opportunity. Let's pray for just a moment, please. Father God, I thank you that your truth will be spoken today. I pray, Father, that ears be attentive to what you would have us hear, that your Holy Spirit would be active in this truth. Father, that we take it to heart and we act on it in a way that would be pleasing and honorable to you. So, Father, do your good work today and let us receive what you have. We say this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So Paul, we've, we've been hearing over the last couple of weeks, being in prison, writing this letter to the church in Philippi, encouraging them to keep fighting the good fight, to keep standing firm, to keep uh, doing the things that they're doing, also giving instruction. But he starts here in verse 27, "...only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ." So we hear this word, "...worthy." Right? And, and we pull that out and we say, okay, what does worthy mean? Isn't it easy for us to focus on how unworthy we are? It is so easy for us to look at our own frailty, at our, at our own sin, our own mistakes, our own disobedience to God and think, I am so unworthy to be in His presence. And in of ourselves, that's true. But God doesn't see us as unworthy. Well, why is that? Let's look at some basic precepts of what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ by defining this word of worthiness on God's viewpoint, God's definition, and not of our own. So we're going to look at the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father being the architect of our salvation putting a plan together throughout history to bring about redemption of His people. Of acknowledging how sin was brought into the world and knowing that, and and not wondering how He was going to uh, accomplish that, uh, how to bring that about, but putting a plan in place over history to bring that about. We see in the Old Testament... uh, When Justin was preaching through Exodus, we see the Exodus, the redemption of his people out of slavery, out of bondage. And we see that history and how that plays into Jesus and what he did for our rescue from adoption. So God is that architect of our salvation. Jesus, the Son, is the accomplisher of that salvation. Plans put in place... How do we accomplish that? How does Jesus accomplish that? He accomplishes that, obviously, by living a perfect life, making Himself the atonement, the sin. He became sin Himself so that we could have right standing with God. He accomplished that process. And He's the only one that could. God was the only one that could be the architect of our salvation. Jesus was the only one that could be the accomplisher of our salvation. So that leaves us with the Holy Spirit. If we're going to be standing in right worthiness with God, then, and God is the architect of that, Jesus is the accomplisher, what roles does the Holy Spirit play? He's the applier of our sanctification. 
So now we're looking at what Paul was talking about, living in a manner of life to be worthy of the gospel. Is listening to the Holy Spirit's prompting and prodding conviction as He's the uh, applier of our sanctification, of our growth in the faith. So we see how the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all play their role in, in bringing us to a place where we stand in worthiness. But Paul here is directly telling the church in Philippi that they must live their life in a man, they must let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Now we can look at sin a little bit differently. Before we were redeemed, before Jesus accomplished this good work, right? We saw sin as a barrier between us and God. And it was. It was absolutely a barrier that kept us from being standing in His presence, being seen as worthy. Well, if we're worthy now, then where is that sin? How can we view that sin differently? We view it differently because it's no longer a barrier, but it does bring disharmony. So it's not a hindrance of our relationship with God, but it is a hindrance for our harmony with God the Father. I don't know if y'all dealt with this when you were kids, but I remember when dad was mad or mom was mad, there was not a lot of harmony going on in our house. There was tension. Well, on a much grander scale, God the Father, when we bring, when we introduce our own sin into that relationship, there's disharmony, there's tension in there that we bring. So Paul is saying, don't live that way. Don't live in that tension. Don't live in that disharmony. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. The gospel of grace. The gospel that Jesus accomplished in this. In this harmony, in this disharmony, when we introduce sin into this life, we have to look at the fact that that disharmony is not just affecting us. That disharmony affects others. You look at the evidence of the, the event in Genesis chapter 12 when Abram was in Egypt. Facing the fact that he convinced his wife Sarai to act as his sister so that he wouldn't be destroyed. Now God had promised him that he would be blessed. But he let his fear override that blessing to bring this activity which obviously brought dishonor to God. It was not God's plan. It was not God's desire that that happened. But Abram introduces that. So does Abram deal with the consequences of that specific event, that specific actions? No, he doesn't. Not in a real physical sense at that time. Who did? Pharaoh and his house. So we have to look at the fact that when we bring this harmony into this relationship with God, we are not necessarily the ones impacted. We are impacted spiritually. There's disharmony there. But others can be impacted. So so Paul is telling the church, don't do that. Live your life in such a way that people see God in action. They see the grace of Christ. They see those things so that disharmony doesn't exist on a spiritual level. Now, when Paul is writing to the church in Philippi, at this point in the text, we don't see a specific issue, sin issue, that Paul is addressing. Rather, he's giving words of encouragement. Whenever I read the epistles and, and know that they are letters that Paul has written to the church, I think of letters uh, and, and how encouraging that they can be. I think we've kind of lost the art of handwritten letters to one another. We do text, we do email, we do those things. But we've lost what a written letter can do for somebody. Uh, When I I was a little kid, I would get these letters from my grandmother telling me what a good boy I was and and lifting me up and just how much that meant to me that that knowing that my grandmother loved me, my mamma and my granny, just just lifted me up and... And now knowing what I know about myself, they were burning their knees up in prayer at the same time they were writing these encouraging letters to me. Lord, let him turn turn himself from the way he's living right now. But what an encouragement that is. When When I was in the Navy, 
And I would get these letters from home, from my sisters and my parents, how encouraging that was. So the church in Philippi, who's been, who's been participating in Paul's ministry, and knowing that Paul's in prison, it would be so easy for them to become dejected. But they don't. They receive a letter from their church father, who is encouraging them to live the way they're living, but to even live more so in a manner of life that would bring glory to God. In verse 5, we see this encouragement of of what he's saying you're doing right when he talks in verse 5 about being in partnership with the gospel. He's he's looking at the fact that, that the church is playing a role in how the gospel is spread and how the gospel is seen. How encouraging that is to them to know that they're participating in that. Paul then goes to say after... Uh, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that so whether I come and see you or am absent. Uh, last Sunday, Brandon preached about uh, Paul being in prison, saying to live is Christ, to die is gain. No matter where I am on a physical sense, you know I I am in a great place and and I'm with you, right? So he's saying whether I come there or whether I remain absent, uh, I want to hear that you are standing firm. In one spirit. Paul tells the church there to stand firm. Well, to stand firm in what? He's telling them to stand firm in one spirit. What spirit? Which spirit? Stand firm in the Holy Spirit. As a Christian, we believe that when we come to Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells us. The same Holy Spirit that indwells me, indwells you as a believer. So stand firm in that one Spirit, that one thing that brings us together, that brings us into intimate relationship with one another. Stand firm in that. Paul talks in other places in the the epistles, uh, in his letters where he's talking about being one. You know, a body is many parts, but is one body. He, he brings this. Jesus Himself, in John chapter 17, uh, says, he's, he's pre- praying to the Father that they, meaning the church, that they be one even as we are one. We see this oneness, this coming together of a unified spirit is consistent throughout the Bible. If, I don't know if y'all got notes on there, but you may, may see in your notes right now, it says, remember the Alamo. What a weird place to interject something from Texas history into a scripture about Paul talking about being one. But I don't know about y'all, when I met Sill in South Carolina, this is how ethnocentric I was. I said, in South Carolina, when, when did y'all study Texas history? Like, why would you study? Why would we study Texas history? Because it's cool. Texas history is cool, right? And then I learned that in the seventh grade, they study South Carolina history. Well, in Texas, we studied Texas history every year. Every year, we heard this the, the, the account of what happened at the Alamo. We see the movies that are, and so we see this, this oneness. Of, of coming together of, of one goal, of one thought, of, of one desire to come together to defend the Alamo. And even that term, remember the Alamo, was a unifying thing for, for the battle of San Jacinto, that they came together of this one mind to come together. That oneness that existed there pales in comparison to what Paul is talking about to be in one spirit. To come together as one. To rely on the Holy Spirit to bring that intimacy into your relationship with one another. One spirit and one mind. The Greek word there, mind, is psyche. We get the word psychology, psychiatry, and psychosis from this uh, word psyche, meaning mind. And what that means in Greek is uh, the sphere of affections, moral energies of the heart, mind, and will. So not just brain activity, but 
all of those things coming together. The affections, the things that we feel. The, the moral energies, the things that drive us to do right or wrong. Our heart, mind, and will. That, that thing that burns deep inside of us, prompting us to do something. So what is that? We're going to break this down into a couple of components. That oneness. What does that oneness mean? That oneness has an aspect of emotion. That we as a body of believers have a oneness of emotion. When we're of one mind, we bring our emotions together. Do we share our brothers and sisters' burdens? Do we hurt when they hurt? We have a very dear sister in this church, Regina Henry, who yesterday had to endure the passing of her son. Now, just a couple of hours before that took place, I had the the blessing and the honor to talk to Regina. And we prayed together. And she said, Kyle, my, my prayer is that just that he go quickly, that he not have to linger and endure in pain through this process. And within a couple of hours, he had passed. So God blessed her with the answer to that prayer. Do we hurt when she hurts? Do we feel that loss? I saw, I, saw, I saw facial expressions when I announced that, that, that an, an emotion was taken in. Do we share that oneness of emotion? Do we share that with each other? I think we do from time to time. Do we rejoice when our brothers and sisters rejoice? When someone has a victory, do we lift them up in praise? What a great job! They're, they're wrestling with something spiritually, and they have a breakthrough with that. Do we lift them up? Do we rejoice when they rejoice? Do we have that oneness of emotion? Another area where we're to have oneness is in our decision-making. Decision-making decision is judgment. We make judgments. But by what standard do we judge? Do I judge on my own standards? I, I do. You do. We all do. But there's a higher standard. There's a greater standard by which we can judge things. By which we can discern things. By which we can know things and, and act together. But do we share that discipline of discernment with one another? The one thing that Paul, one of the things that Paul is saying here is in being of one mind is including discernment. So how do we do that? How do we come to one mind of discernment? That one standard that I talked about? We all know that. We have to learn what that standard is. When I, when I don't know how to make a decision, let me rely on that spirit that exists in me to help me make that decision. When a brother or sister comes to me and I'm having a rough time, I don't know how to make this decision. Well, let's come together in prayer. Let's rely on the Holy Spirit prompting to help us make that decision. That's how you come to a oneness in decision making, in discernment on what is right and wrong and the good thing to do. You know, we, we just built this building. We're in the process of reconstructing, uh, remodeling the church here. Do we have a oneness of mind in that? To be frank, there may be people here in the, in the church body that say, well, I don't know if that's a good idea or not. That, that could be true, right? But I believe that it, it, at the core that we come together with a oneness and saying, what's the purpose in doing this? It's to expand and express and, and to, to, to move the gospel out from just these walls. We can change what's going on here, but what's the purpose? Is to go out and to welcome others in. To, to break that barrier of what that church door is. I think we have a oneness in mind that that's the purpose of doing that. Another oneness that we share is a oneness of ambition. What do we want to accomplish? What did, the, what did Paul want the church in Philippi to accomplish. Well, he talks about it very clearly when he talks about the gospel. 
That's what's to be accomplished. The spreading of the gospel. So when we look at that original audience, Paul is encouraging the church there to be in one mind in evangelism, discipleship. This is a transcendent implication. I'm, I'm learning this cool, world, cool word transcendent and how, how it applies to the Bible. That there are things that occur in the Bible that are unique to that time and place. Right? But there are truths that are transcendent. That take that time and place and they expand them to all of church history. To all of us. Past, present, and future. What are we to do? Evangelism is not something that existed in the church of Philippi. Or the church of Thessalonica, or one of the other churches that was going on at the, you know, that Paul was, was helping grow at that time. This is true of us today. Evangelism. Mike, uh, just returned from Africa. And I don't know if you got the email, and I'm sure he's gonna share, uh, in a couple of weeks what, what happened, but I'm gonna steal his thunder just a little bit. Thousands of people came to Christ. Thousands of people now are brothers and sisters in Christ because of evangelism. Because someone had the courage to step out of themselves and to say, here's the truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Here is this truth. That's what evangelism is. Well, that's great when you can go to Africa if you have the opportunity to do that but if but if you don't you don't have the financial means or you don't have the time away from work or whatever then i guess i just can't evangelize i guess that just doesn't happen that sounds kind of silly doesn't it you're at the gas station somebody's having a hard time hey can i pray for you i'm gonna pray for me why would you want to pray for me well let me tell you why i want to pray for you it's a great conversation starter I, I confessed uh, the uh, other night in our life group that that I'm on a plane every week. And it's usually about an hour and a half to two and a half hour flight. Now when you start that flight talking about the gospel, that can make for an awkward two, two and a half hours. But I have found that when I do, God always bears fruit from it. Now I'm confessing that I don't always do that. But what an opportunity to share that. You're, you're, you have opportunities that are unique to you. That's what evangelism is, to take those opportunities and spread that truth. So a oneness in evangelism, coming together of understanding that truth and sharing it. The other is discipleship. Discipline, disciple, being a student. Teaching others what this truth is. Sharing what you have learned from that. Being taught. Finding things in the Bible that frankly you don't understand. Teach me what that means. Find someone who is senior in the faith to you to speak that truth into you. Are we of oneness of mind to bring those two things, evangelism and discipleship, and to share them? Because if we can't share that with each other, then we're not going to have the courage to do that into a world that's hurting for the gospel. So a oneness of our emotion, of our decision-making, and of our ambition. Paul then goes on to talk about striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Striving, working, pushing. Side by side, with one another. Uh, When I was looking up the definition of the word uh, striving, I found this other word that came along with it in in the dictionary was vigorously. Vigorously pushing with one another side by side in this commonness that we have in the gospel. You know, when we, when we talked about evangelism and discipleship, do we do that vigorously together? Do we push ourselves outside of our own comfort zone? Do we do that? We look at our church and we have to affirm that if we're, stri- if we're striving side by side, vigorously for the for the gospel we have to acknowledge that this church is not a church of passengers 
This is not a tour bus. Syl and I took a vacation a couple of years ago to Boston, and it was so cool to go on the tour bus when the tour guide was saying, this is, this is Paul Revere's house, and this is the USS Constitution, and this is, it was so cool to do that. But when we got out and really saw the place and engaged in that, it was a whole different level. Our church is not a church of passengers. I had this word picture given to me years ago, and it's always stuck with me that a church should not be like a professional football game where you have 22 people down on the field struggling and striving and working and, and challenging each other. And then you have thousands of people in the stands either cheering or booing them on. That's not what our church is. Our church is not a church of passengers. We are all striving and struggling, not struggling, striving together uh, vigorously to push forth the gospel. So we're going to talk more about application in a minute, but I want to take a moment to talk about application is then if I'm supposed to be striving side by side with my brothers in the church as the church of Philippi, then what role am I playing in that striving? What am I doing to add to the the, the work of the gospel? Maybe it's children's ministry that you, you see that there's a need there. Now, I'm not saying everybody go sign up for, for child's ministry, although I'm sure Rachel would appreciate the, the extra help. But there's men's ministry, there's ladies' ministry, there's community outreach, there's uh, worldwide evangelism. There's, there's no reason to not find an opportunity to participate in this striving side by side here at Grace Church. There is opportunity to do that. And if you don't see an opportunity that exists, but you think of one, bring that. Bring that say, have you ever thought about doing this? Let us strive side by side together with you in your passion to spread the gospel, to evangelize and disciple. Another area where we look at striving side by side, vigorously working together, is this aspect of consent is not cooperation. Consent is not cooperation. The fact that I agree with you, I I agree with you, I I agree with you, Kyle, with with Pastor Justin, with the other elder, I agree with you that that's what we should do, but I'm not going to do anything about it, right? I, I, I can't do that. Well, that's a barrier putting into what Paul is talking about, striving side by side with one another. Cooperate, play a role. A third aspect that we're looking at this striving side by side is sharing the faith in the gospel. Sharing the faith in the gospel. Well, how do we share in faith of the gospel? Well, that's, there's two components to that. One is knowing. I have to know the gospel before I can share in it. Well, if I know it, I should be able to express it to somebody. Well, I, I don't know exactly how to do that. That's okay. There's people that can come alongside you and help you put that into words that you feel comfortable with, that express the truth to others. But I have to know what it is. How do I know what it is? I read the Word. I read God's text about what the Gospel is. That I am a sinner. That there is a barrier between me and God. And only through the redemption, accomplished work of Jesus Christ, who took on sin, can that sin be taken away as a barrier. And then on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, giving us eternal life. And the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was indwelt into the believer. See how easy that was? That's the gospel. If we share in oneness and knowing that, that we can strive by side in sharing that faith with others. Well, one is we know it. The other aspect of that is agreeing on it. If what I just shared with you in that, in that brief little snippet of the gospel you don't agree with, well, then let's come together. And let's find out where that disjunction is so that we can agree on that as we share that faith in the gospel. 
Paul then goes on to say in verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This, the, the, the Greek word there, frightened, alludes to stampeding horses. That level of being frightened. I don't know if you've ever been around a herd of animals that, that has been frightened. But I remember as a child working on my grandfather's ranch, and when the cattle were frightened, they would scatter, and there was this power that would go out. I mean, these are huge animals. And this power would go out, overrunning whatever. And Paul's saying, don't be like that. Don't be frightened. He's telling us not to scatter when the church faces opposition. Now, he doesn't say, don't scatter, don't be frightened like a stampede of horses if the church faces opposition. But when the church faces opposition. We live in a world that opposes our faith. The church at Philippi lived in a world that opposed the faith. This again is one of those transcendent truths. That there will always be opposition to this truth. When we act together, when the church faces that opposition, and we act together in love and grace, that's all. We talked about God being the architect of our salvation. There's other aspects, parts of that plan. And when we act together in love and grace, and we're facing this opposition, that's part of God's plan of conviction. Part of God's plan in bringing people to Himself is conviction. When we act in a way that is love and grace, in a way that faces the world's opposition, people will see that and say, well, why, why are they that way? And then they have to face their own sin. They have to face their own conviction that comes along with that. He goes on to say, our unity is assigned to the world's destruction. Destruction. God's going to destroy the world. So we talked about conviction. God's plan includes conviction, which includes facing destruction. When I came to Christ, I was faced with my own destruction. I, I came face to face with the fact that I was living a lie that was going to bring destruction. Again, just remember we talked about just a minute ago, not just to me, but to the others that I love. God's plan of conviction brings us to that point where we're faced with the destruction of ourselves. So what does this destruction mean? How do we define that for others? This destruction is the irrevocable, irrevocable loss of hope, paradise, satisfaction, Joy and fulfillment. Think about that for just a minute. Irrevocable loss of hope. Of, of, of knowing that things uh, will be better than they are right now. Losing that hope. Losing that, that, uh, that, that desire for things to be better than they are. That's gone. That hope is gone. Paradise. A place of perfection is gone. When destruction comes about, satisfaction is one of the uh, natures of addiction. Uh, those of you who who share my uh, burden of addiction will know that you can never fill that hole. My my dear sweet wife uses this term called a god sized hole, and we try to fill that with with so many different things. It can be drugs or alcohol or pornography or illicit sex. I mean, those are big things that we talk about in addiction. But it can be shopping. It can be in pride. Lifting yourself up. That can be an addiction. You'll never be satisfied. You will never fill that God-sized hole when you have that irrevocable loss. Joy, not happiness, but joy. Sitting in the presence of the Father, feeling joy. And last, fulfillment. 
of accomplishing God's purpose in your life. You'll never feel that with that irrevocable loss when that destruction comes. So when we're sharing what destruction means to people, this is what you're losing out on. Now God is love. It's, we, we love buying into that truth, that God is love. What a beautiful picture of what a father would be. But God is also judgment. God is love and judgment. We can't escape that, and we shouldn't shy away from that. When we're, when we're addressing the world's destruction, when we, Paul says, don't be frightened when you face opposition. Right, So in that fear, we have the strength, we have the courage to say, this is what destruction is, world. That you're going to lose these things. Well, believer salvation is not just escaping judgment. It's not just escaping that judgment, that irrevocable loss. I mean, it's a great and wonderful thing, don't get me wrong. But it's not just that. It's through the Holy Spirit appropriating the blessings given by God. Paul talks about being a joint heir with Christ. That blessing of glory that we will have. We will be face to face with the Father. Now often we can think of those blessings of having enough money in my job and having a good roof over my head. and Those things are nice and they are blessings. But the blessings that God has for us are so much more than that. Paul begins to end up this text by saying, uh, we just talked about this is a clear sign to them for their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. We must suffer for His sake. And when I say we must suffer, doesn't mean I have to go out looking for suffering because I've got to suffer. I've got to check that off my list that I, that I, okay, I've done my suffering for the day. That's not what he's talking about and you must suffer is you will suffer. That, that will happen to you being a follower of Christ. So in this suffrage, what, what do we look at? In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Verses 13, uh, 11 and 12, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Paul says here, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. And he ends with this in this text. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We will face that. We look at brothers and sisters in China who are facing persecution on a level that, frankly, we don't understand. We see persecution as a Christian baker who's getting sued because he has to, he's been told to make a cake for a same-sex union or a... Uh, atheistic thing or whatever. We see that as persecution. And it is. It, it is. But frankly, I, I haven't felt very persecuted. I've had the freedom to speak the gospel when, when I can, when I do. I, 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 nobody's come into my house and taken my Bible and burning it. But brothers and sisters, make no mistake, that time is coming. There is a time coming when our faith will be illegal, just as it was in the early church. And we will face that persecution. You can't look at what's going on in the current world today and see that not encroaching in. Okay? So we have to deal with that. We have to deal with that persecution. But the beauty in this, if we suffer for His sake we will also share in His glory. 
If we suffer for His sake, we will also share in His glory. I, I can't even begin to comprehend what His glory looks like. We've had, I don't know about you, but have snippets of that when, when you see a beautiful thing happen. Or you have a victory over a sin issue. Or a great blessing comes your way spiritually. That's just a brief little snippet picture of what His glory looks like. And if we can't comprehend that on this level, but we will share in that, in truth, when that day comes, when we are in, uh, when we have Christ Jesus. Paul ends here in verse 30 saying, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. The conflict of being chained to a guard, is that the conflict he's talking about? I don't think so. I think Paul almost sees that as a blessing because he has a captive audience where he's sharing the gospel with. The conflict is the enemy brings lies. And we have to speak truth against those lies. One of the great lessons I learned a few years ago about the enemy and his lies were a lie is only a lie. It only has power until you know the truth. You don't know it's a lie until you know the truth. I could tell you that I have $10 million in my bank account right now. And you wouldn't know that's a lie. You might suspect it. But you wouldn't know that was a lie unless you went to my bank and looked at my bank statement and said, oh, that's a lie. Right? So we don't know something is a lie until we know the truth. Well, if we don't know the truth, the enemy is going to speak lies into us and to others that we have to be ever able to counteract. The conflict in which we deal with is we have an enemy... Who wants to seek, kill, and destroy. Yet we have the power of truth that overpowers that. Let's look at some application. Out of this text, what do we believe? We believe that we have to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. The actions that, that I participate in should glorify God, should promote the gospel. I believe that. I hope you believe that. After reading this text and hearing these words, it's like, okay, an application. I need to believe, first, believe that I live in a manner worthy of the gospel, worthy of grace. We don't earn our salvation. It's not that kind of worth I'm talking about. It's living in such a way to, to, to show that grace as fulfilled. Another thing I need to believe is that I need to stand firm in a unity of one spirit with my brothers and sisters. I have to believe that when there's discord, when there's tension, when there's disharmony to my brothers and sisters, I work to reconcile that. I have to believe that that's what Paul is saying here, that I live in one spirit with my brothers and sisters. Another thing I believe is that we will suffer. The truth is the truth. Jesus said we'll suffer. Paul says we'll suffer. The truth is consistent through the Bible. We will suffer. We will be persecuted. We have to endure that. I believe that's true. So when it comes, not if, but when it comes, I'm not surprised by that. It's not, a, it's, not, it's not a thing that takes me aghast. I think sometimes we do that. We see something that comes against us. It's like, wait, that's not supposed to happen. Well, yeah, it is. It's absolutely supposed to happen. So those are things that we're supposed to believe. Uh, we can't just believe some of God's promises. I can't believe in, in heaven without believing in hell. 
I can't believe in judgment and grace without judgment. The two things must work together for me to have a true belief. So what do I do? We talked about what we believe. What do I do? Well, if I believe that I'm supposed to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, I have to do a gut check. I have to look at the man in the mirror and say, did the things I do today bring honor and glory to God? Was it worthy of the gospel? I'm the only person that can answer that, and you're the only person that can answer that for you. So we have to do that. We must stand firm in unity. That's what we have to do. So how do we do that as an application? We participate in fellowship. If I'm going to be unified with my brothers and sisters, I have to spend time with my brothers and sisters. There are times when when, uh, I've been ill and watched church on television. And Charles Stanley and Dr. David David Jeremiah and those guys are, are great preachers. But it's not the same level of being here with my brothers and sisters. We have to have that fellowship if we're going to engage in that unity of one spirit. Other things that we do are participate in a life group. A life group is where you sit down, a small group where you sit down and do life with one another, with another group of believers. Where you spend some time in the Word and sharing what the Word means, that you, that you sup with one another. There's something about having a dinner together that kind of breaks the barrier of, of, uh, uh, of living. But the other thing that Life Group does is it gives you an opportunity to hear true prayer burdens with one another and to lift those up. Those things, fellowship, Bible study, Life Group, Bring us together where we can be of one mind, of one psyche. The last application, if we believe that we will suffer, what do we do with that? We endure. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have run the race well. We have to ask ourselves the question, Am I enduring well? Am I running the race well? Am I fighting the good fight? Am I enduring these persecutions that come against me? And it's not just enduring on a level was, I'm dealing with this. I'm dealing with this so well. That's not the endurance that that Paul talks about. Endure with joy. Count it all joy. When things come against you. We endure with a face of joy, with a, with a love that's expressed. When people see that we're enduring things, with a face of grace, with the love that comes out of us, again, it's like, what's weird about that person? How can they do that? Something that I learned uh, a while back is that um, sometimes... Sometimes the lesson is not for me. Sometimes the lesson is for somebody who's watching me and how well I endure. I'm going to go back just a moment while we were talking about striving one together to talk about a story. Uh, and I hope this is, uh, it's always convicting to me. It happened to me and I've learned from it, but it's still convicting to me. And I'm going to share it with you in the hopes that it's convicting for you. Years ago, some of you know this story. Years ago, I was a new believer. And we attended First Baptist Church, Gripping Springs, Texas. And there was a man there named Mr. Gene Nielsen. Now, Mr. Gene Nielsen was a short, slight man. Wore a lime green sports coat every Sunday. Every man got a handshake, every woman got a hug had this beautiful smile on his face, welcomed everybody to church. That was his job. He was a welcomer. 
Now, I didn't know it at the time, but I found later that he was a real deal war hero. He helped rescue thousands of prisoners from a prisoner of war camp in, in World War II in Germany and uh, Japan. But you would never know it to see him. He was just a mild, meek man. Always had this beautiful smile on his face. Well, one day I was feeling poopy. I was. And I knew just enough things to say to sound Christianese, to sound like I knew what I was talking about in the church. So I walked in one day in my little poopy face, and he said, Kyle, what's wrong? Well, Mr. Gene, I just don't feel the church is meeting my needs. And this beautiful, sweet smile turned to stone. He said, Kyle, the church is not here to meet your needs. Jesus Christ meets your needs. You're here to meet the church's needs. The conviction that I felt that I play a role in something bigger than myself. To be of one mind with a body of believers. To strive vigorously. To suffer as others suffer. And to share that burden with them. That's what Paul is talking about in this text. To be together as one and deal with the stuff that comes against you. I hope that you take those convicting statements to heart, not that I'm browbeating you, but that the truth of God is spoken to you in such a way that you choose to act. Let's pray. Father God, I thank You so much for Your truth. I thank You for Your conviction and Your plan, how that prompts us to act in a way that is, in a manner that is worthy of the Gospel. That we strive in one spirit with one another, Father, to lift up a world that desperately needs to hear You. And Father, that we endure the suffering that will come against us for Your sake and for Your glory. And in a way that amazes us, that You take that blessing that's due You and share that with us. Thank You, Father, for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.